You're listening to Arc Radio Podcast. I'm your host Zubair Akram with program Reflections and with me I have uh, my guest Sheikh Ridwan Muhammad Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Sheikh um, we've uh, okay you, you've had yeah uh, I had had a break for two days um so it was Ahmad and Ahmed with you uh, I was I was saying oh we went here for two days so h- how was your how were your reflections um in last two days uh, I I have no idea. <laughs> Oh, are they reflective, reflective enough? Whoever was thrown my path. Um, it's always a surprise to find out what, what the topic... I just came in now and you told me what the programme's about. So the new sec- section in the, in the programme today? Alhamdulillah, there are three. Well, that's the three sections, right? Well, you let me know what they are. <laughs> and, and the first one is um, Living the Faith, okay. uh, which um, we, we, we are... Uh, living the faith in the context that we live in. Mm. And the second segment is uh, going to be more of tazkiyah, mm-hmm. reflective. And third is uh, we are going to present a dua for the listeners and mm-hmm. um, ask you to comment on it. Mm-hmm. And inshallah we'll conclude our program with a uh, collective dua as well. Inshallah. So yeah, living the faith. Um, British values. Mm-hmm. British values is something that's thrown at us <laughs> all the time. Um, we are asked to live the values of the country that we live in mm-hmm. that that's what we want to live that's and what we, we want to live or we're asked to we, we're asked to live mm-hmm. uh, and so so the, the 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 question arises how can we reconcile with with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks us to give our allegiance to God and him only mm-hmm. and our love is for the prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam Mm-hmm. And the value, values that we have are derived from the, the, the beautiful sunnah of our Prophet ﷺ, the life of uh, our, our, our master, and the sharia of uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we have an allegiance to the country that we live in. And there are values we've asked to, to adopt. Is there an issue there? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Is there an issue there? I think the way you've um, framed it, the way you've presented it, you obviously decide there is an issue, so <laughs> you've, you've created it in such a stark black and white contrast um, setting that it's actually obvious that you think there's a issue there, or you're pray, trying to pray, pray, play um, the devil's advocate in Ramadan. <laughs> so no, I don't know devil, which devil's locked. Devil's yeah, locked. devil's. So I'm, that's what I'm saying. So his advocate is still <laughs> um, able to influence, but I think that is. A load, what you call a loaded question because you know British values um, we don't really know what they are but the thing is that there's general values that human beings generally understand but what I, what I, what I find interesting about the, the imposition of this or the, the insistence of, of people that other people follow values mm. is that those values are not defined that's the first thing so it kind of indicates that you know it's, it's something that you can't really follow if it's not defined well and everybody agrees on what it is. It can't just be something that everybody understands what British values are, because obviously mm-hmm. there's scenarios where somebody will say this is a British value, and the perfect example is one of our or one of our previous um, political leaders, um, Farage. Uh, his definition of British values would be by you know you have to go to the pub <coughs> and drink English, you know ale. 
you know, yeah. in a tweed jacket. And this is um, this is the most perfect manifestation of British values. So you have to, after Jumu'ah, you have to come to the pub and you have to have a draft of, of, of lag or whatever it is. And then, Ahmed, you are now a British, fully-fledged member of the British... You're naturalised. Um, you know, you're naturalised. So everybody will, will, will disagree. And the fact that you disagree on certain things means that, you know, <coughs> you need to be a bit more clear what that is. But the other issue is British values... As opposed to, what about um, French values? Does that mean mm. um, a person who's... I was speaking to somebody who's from, from, from Spain. Uh, he, he's, his, his child goes to the same school as um, my daughter. And he was kind of vexed about the issue of Brexit and what they're gonna, what situation going to be with him and his family. Uh, and also, he also was wondering whether the values that Britain has and what it stands for is different from what, you know, Spain and the people of Spain stand for mm-hmm. or the people of Italy or the people of Germany and the people of France and the people of America so is it British values that we're talking about or is it some, some kind of Western values okay. so the issue that you specifically said British values you're, you're saying that you are, you're, you're completely um, opposed to certain values that are in the French in public space there's certain things about French people and their values don't, you don't like mm. otherwise you would have said British and French values, or the Germans, or the Europeans, say the Europeans, okay, European values, there's something about European values that we don't like. Mm. And at that point, it becomes a very, very murky um, discussion, because what is at play here is not the, the British values, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an issue of subjugation of a majority over what is considered to be, or perceived to be a minority. It's this idea, it's a power politics. So it's not really about signing up to shared values and shared concerns and shared responsibilities and duties. There's actually a more sinister aspect to this, which is actually Mm -hmm. you're trying to impose some sort of authority upon people that you feel you need to control. And and that for me, that actually goes back to the fact that you've the, 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 the British establishment, if it were, as it were, you know, the ones that are untouched by the in- influx of, of people that have come into this country after the Second World War, they still view people that come out from outside as being part and parcel of an empire mm-hmm. that they can subjugate. I think it's a subconscious, very clear subconscious idea there that you have to, you have to, st- you have to fulfil our um, conditions, our rights. Is it not the case, and has been the case throughout the history, mm-hmm. whoever is in power, mm-hmm. they would like to impose, they, they would like to... Uh, the, the power wants to prevail mm-hmm. and you don't want it to be diluted in any way um, what is it that requires uh, other than okay there's a religious kind of obligation perhaps somewhere that y- a non-Muslim cannot enter uh, uh, the the the, uh, the haram the haram mm-hmm. um, and it's more than haram isn't it it's like me uh, it's from the mikat onwards um, so mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's quite a distance it's not the, mm-hmm. just the haram mm-hmm. um, what is it that a, a, a person who's not a Muslim mm-hmm. is required to adhere to a dress code mm-hmm. in a Muslim uh, in, in many Muslim countries mm-hmm. um, so there is you, you're expected to conform to the local customs the mm-hmm. local which are understood local customs now right. there are understood local western cultural customs mm. and here we have people crying out oh we're not allowed to wear a niqab we're not allowed to wear a hijab 
So wh- wh- where is this? Um, uh, is it not a bit discriminatory? Yeah, I, can, I understand what you're saying. But my point is about the fact that the the, the definition and what British values are is sometimes disputed amongst the British. Okay. So therefore, how can you impose... My issue is about how can you impose something that's not defined? So say in a court of law, somebody says, well, this person did this, and it's totally against British, British values and British laws, they should be extradited or taken to, you know, and they should be interned or something. And then the judge says, well, you know, want an expert witness, and the expert witness says, well, this is not British values, this is just the values of, of a specific social class in Britain. Mm. And there, all of a sudden, it's, it becomes controversial. We're talking about something that's undefined. So British values is something that's undefined. And why is it that these values are more important than, than human values? You know, can we not get to the point? And mm. this is why I'm saying it's some kind of power politics at play here, which is that if you can agree upon civic values, human civic values that are understood and, and accepted over, over centuries, mm. that seems to be a much more palatable starting point. Unless you say that there are certain things within, say, the, the Sikh faith or the Islamic faith or the Jewish faith, like ritual slaughter, which is against British values. Mm-hmm. So imagine in, in a couple of years, part and parcel of British values, and what the core of British values is the way you treat animals at time of slaughter. According to them, they want to have, have them stunned, but also machine slaughtered without any kind of ritual at all. This is British values. And does that mean now that you impose that upon mm. Muslims or Jewish people in terms of their dietary law, which has happened in Belgium already? So it's not really about um, setting some kind of moral good or setting some kind of benchmark of what should be done in society. It's actually some kind of power politics. Whereas your, your question, which is, you know, in, 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 a, in a Muslim country, for example, certain Muslim countries, there are restrictions in terms of travel, specifically in terms mm-hmm. of the, the most clear and I think the uncontestable or non-contestable uh, issue would be the issue of um, entry into the the the, the hill and haram and the miqat area around around um, Mecca al Mukarramah. There, it's it's a ritual issue. But even Abu Hanifa, actually has a, a couple of nuances there. He doesn't actually accept the kind of the way it's been done now. Mm. He doesn't have this kind of ban in the in the way that they have it um, today. So, the fiqh is not unanimous on that. Okay, and the that's probably more administrative. Yeah, thing. no, it's not. It's, it's based on fiqh. So the Maliki Chef in Hanbali School do take that position. Okay. Hanafi School is much more um, egalitarian, if I can use that word, much more. Uh, looks at people much more equally mm-hmm. over human history. It's, it's from the beginning of the fiqh of Abu Hanifa, which is why it's such a, a refreshing um, school in certain senses, because it almost it almost is very modern in its outlook mm-hmm. of citizenship, of rights and responsibilities. Civic but the other issue you mentioned, you just touched upon, but clothing. Mm. I don't know. You probably. I don't know if the, the listeners will understand what you were alluding to, but you're probably alluding to the what's called as the as the as the um, injunctions of Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu about the non-Muslim populations wearing specific types of clothing. There's been a lot of research on that on that specific document, which has basically uh, uh, undermined its authenticity, mm-hmm. and is and has seen it as being a later imposition during the mid Umayyad period. Um, used to restrict, and the same way now we're actually d- is happening to a lot of like in, in America, for example, the travel mm-hmm. ban, um, to restrict the movements and the privileges of the non-Muslim populations, which actually went ag- against the spirit of the Islamic early Islamic faith. 
Mm. So the spirit of the Islamic faith early on was not to have those restrictions and not to have specific types of clothing that were only specific to Christians and they couldn't wear anything else. That is all there. Again, parapolitics, human beings, societies always, you know, when there's some kind of difficulty or there's some kind of threat of weakness, they, they, cl- they clamp down. You know this in, in, yeah. in look in Egypt, um, you know, the present um, president, Sisi, Look at the way that he is he's clamped down on, you know, very legitimate um, uh, uh, um, expressions of, of, of seeking rights amongst the Egyptian mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And you go to any, any other Muslim country, you'll find something very similar. That happens when there's a threat. And during the Umayyad period, there was very draconian um, laws against non, non-Muslims. And they were there actually when the Umayyad dynasty was starting to wane and go into weakness. Mm-hmm. And obviously Abbasids and other people were trying to undermine it. And obviously Abbasids overthrew the Umayyads, um, you know, in, in the in, in the mid uh, one hundred and thirty. That meant that they they clamped down, and that all of a sudden became like part and parcel of fiqh, and it was understood to be mm-hmm. part and parcel of the prophetic teaching, but it wasn't. The point I'm trying to get at is Islamic law should have no problem in expecting the citizens of any country to agree upon a, a, a general unified set of values that should be expected from everybody. Mm-hmm. In other words, Muslims in this country shouldn't expect that they should not sign up to something that is shared with other people. Mm-hmm. You understand? So I think Muslims, they, they have nothing to stand on in certain issues where the Islamic law does say you shouldn't. I mean, I, I'll give you a fair, perfect example. I was in Damascus and I was wearing... Uh, in Punjabi it's a lungi okay and uh, but it was actually Yemeni's um, futa which is basically this kind of thing that you wear it's kind of a if you don't know what a, a toti is or a, <laughs> a lungi is. lungi is or a, or a futa is it's basically a loin wrap yes it's a kilt and a teacher's my teacher's pulled me up and says this is not bef- you cannot wear this in this in this country mm-hmm. because it's against the the, 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 the culture the, the custom of is against Syrian values yeah. <laughs> and I remember if, when I heard it I thought no way come on I'm going to argue with him and then it was like basically I was I was dressed up as you know like um, had a kameez yeah and then a lungi yeah, yeah a, a proper kind of uh, Punjabi. Punjabi yeah you know yeah, from yeah. wherever it is and I thought about it and after a couple of days I actually clicked and I realised I do look really strange okay <laughs> and so Syrian Damascus actually Damascian values the values of Damascus which actually meant that I, I stopped doing that and they said basically you wear Arab dress or you wear normal dress that people wear or clothing that you, people wear because so that's, that, <coughs> that was actually imp- by a teacher by, by, my, teacher, by my shiuch I, I sat in the class so reversing that uh-huh. living here uh-huh. is it not the same is, is it, should we as Muslims not adhere to some kind of cultural norms that we, we live and rather than obliterating the whole mm. canvas and the social fabric of this place that we, we, we've chosen as, uh, as a home. See, see that's, a, that's a, a touch it off for a lot of people because people don't think, like Muslims do not think much, very, I'll be very blunt, mm-hmm. they refuse to think about things which we are told to think about. Mm. And amongst those things is cultural norms and clothing um, and and if you look at the time the Prophet Ali Salat was, in fact, if you look, if you think about it, look at the if you look at the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam himself, it, one of the great, one of the amazing miracles of Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is <coughs> the fact that he, as a one person living in 
in, in basically a provincial um, side vi- village, which mm. Mecca Mukarram was not a city in, in, in the sense that we understand a cosmopolitan city. It was a centre of, of pilgrimage. It was, it was somewhere people went to seasonally. Yeah, it's a retreat. Yeah. But it was not an international crossroads. It mm-hmm. was, you know, the, 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 the Quraysh, they travelled to Yemen, they travelled to Syria for trade, but it wasn't something that, that people passed through for trade. Mm. Like, for example, you know, the, the Silk Route, people went along the Silk Route because yeah. along it there was these cosmopolitan <coughs> cities which had a bustling economy. Like Istanbul, for example, is a perfect example. It's at the crossroads of two continents. Mm. There's reasons why people pass through it. Mm-hmm. The culture, the religion, the, the people bring them their goods to sell there. Whereas Mecca had idols, that's all it had. It had this ancient mm-hmm. house, which is a Kaaba. But despite the fact the Prophet was so distant from all the civilizations that were there at the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, somewhere where you would not expect to find anything except and only... Arabian produce, you know, but the, what what you see the Prophet do is he wears, and even in Madinah Nawara, he wears clothes from complete different cultures. Like the the Copts sent the Prophet Ali gifts uh, when he was in Madinah Nawara, and clothing, and the Prophet wore it. The Persians sent the Prophet clothing, and he wore it. The Habashi, um, the, the rulers and the kings, they sent the Prophet clothing, and he wore it. The Romans, the Byzantines. Which basically the Europeans they sent the Prophet with clothing and he wore it some t- so we wore it and he gave it away. But the point is, Yemen as well, you know the Yemenis shoes and, and cloaks. The thing is, if you were to meet the Prophet every day, he would have something completely different on. Mm. He was a universal prophet, and mm. this is what's amazing about the Prophet is that he he just took any culture that came, he used it and he and he accepted it and then he passed it on to people to show that Islam is a universal faith. The clothing is not um, restricted to one specific type of clothing, like the, the Indian clothing or the Arabian clothing that we have now. People who are listening to reflections with Sheikh Rizwan Muhammad, uh, th- this concept that we've just discussed could be revolutionary for some. It could be very touchy, as um, Sheikh Rizwan has uh, as, um, st- said. And this is the kind of thing, inshallah, we'll be touching in next 15 days or so, uh, 17, 18 days that are left. Um, living our faith in the context that we live in, some maybe slightly harder questions that are understood to be the, the, the core of our religion and may, they probably aren't. Or some of the things that we think we are in living in sin by just doing what we're doing and we actually probably may, may not be. We are just acting the way we're expected to. And if we can do that with confidence that yes, we are not displeasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we are not going against the grain of uh, the sunnah of the Prophet and actually we are doing okay. What, what I thought was quite revolutionary, or I don't know if that's a word, uh, was different from what I had understood Islam as, or faith as, in terms of, um, uh, I just asked a question in terms of, is that also conversely true, that Muslims shouldn't, or should think of not obliterating the kind of the social fabric and, and kind of not disturbing the the social understood norms in dressing habits mm-hmm. is it something that Muslims should be thinking about while living with living. I think yeah, I and mean, the point I was making was actually it came from I think we started somewhere else, but I think we just went on to that because you're asking about Muslims, Muslim states, or in the past Islamic history, mm-hmm. there was you mentioned an example. 
of restricting the clothing of non-Muslims, which I mentioned is not correct. That was a point. Um, and I mentioned, yeah, I mentioned the issue of when I was in Damascus, the teachers pulling me up, the shul, yeah, yeah. the teachers, scholars pulling me up about the custom of their country, saying you can't go against the custom. Mm. So Syrian values and this and that. So this a bit goes about clothing, but I think what we have to understand is that what we understand to be Islamic mm-hmm. uh, clothing, for example, is not necessarily um, the clothing of the Prophet because mm-hmm. the Prophet's clothing, we, we actually understand very clearly what what type of clothing it is. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee there's nobody in Glasgow that wears that. <coughs> I can say that almost categorically. I've not seen anybody that wears the, the, the type of clothing the Prophet wore <coughs> or the type of turban the Prophet is known to have worn, the head covering and, 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 uh, and, and the, the, the shawl that the Prophet and the way that he wore it. Mm-hmm. Now that means that what we do wear and we understand to be Islamic is basically the cultural uh, clothing that was adopted by uh, amongst Muslims in specific geographical locations. So if you went to Mauritania, a specific t- yeah. type of colouring with a diff- specific type of cotton that they use, a mm-hmm. light blue cotton, which is very... And then the women have different types of clothing. If you go to Iraq, it's a different type of clothing the men wear. Even the the thawb that we understand, in fact everybody listening will think for a man the Islamic clothing is a thawb. And the, the reality is, if you were if you wore a thawb at the time of the Prophet you would not be able to function. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be able to ride a horse, you wouldn't be able to, you, know, you wouldn't be able to function in the daily things that they did. So the thawb is not something that the Prophet ever wore in the way that it's seen now. Mm-hmm. We kind of understand that. Um, so all these things are things that are developed over time, but what they do have, and this is what is good about them, is that they fulfil the basic criteria of what is modest clothing. So what what, what happened, sorry, uh, I'll pause you there, what happened, where it happened in what juncture of history that to become religious, to become a person who follows the Prophet starts wearing a thobe? And that's, that's, I mean, if you're going to ask like that, then it's probably 1980, 85 or something. Because basically you're doing, you're doing something completely different. You've got your own cultural clothing, which is Western clothing. Yeah. And then I've seen this people that come turn up in my house, and it's somebody I haven't seen from school days. And all of a sudden, when we're at school, they have really kind of really trendy clothes. And all of a sudden, they come to my house and knock, and do the bell. And all of a sudden, I see this man with a big thob, yeah, a white thob, and, and a big beard. And they say, "Assalamu alaikum, Radwan." And they embrace me and they say, "Guess who?" <laughs> and I can't recognize it is because they don't look the same as the last time I saw them, like yeah. 20, 25 years ago. And, and that for them is a change. But to change your your character, sometimes people need to change their their outward as well. Okay. So it's it's the you go you go completely to what you think the change should be. Okay. But the reason I'm saying it's very recent, I'm saying the, the yeah. mid '80s. I'm trying to make the point that you have to have something that's norm, normal, and then in society, which is like normal Western clothing, and then you change your habits and you say you rectify your uh, behaviour. And to do that, you with it have a package of change of clothing, and that also, to be honest, is also the case in the Middle East. See, in the 1930s, mm. when there was. Um, Westernization. People started wearing clothes, and especially Turkey. In fact, Turkey is a perfect example of this, where the the, the traditional Turkish clothing was not permitted anymore, um, and people all of a sudden started wearing shirts and trousers, and people who wore the other thing were ridiculed. Now, imagine the person now in the in the in the eighties and nineties in Turkey, in Çarşamba. You probably know if you went to Istanbul, you know Çarşamba near Fatih. It's a whole district where now the Turkish 
a, a quite a large group of Turkish people are now going back to the old Turkish clothing, which is actually mm-hmm. looks very strange in Turkey. Yeah, yeah. You don't, you you know what I mean? Because yeah. if you've been to Istanbul, even the most religious of people, you won't know the religious until you speak to them. Yes. It was when you speak to them, they won't look religious. Yes. And they will. It was absolutely impossible to tell between a religious person and a non-religious person just from outward appearances. And that's the nature of Turkish society now. Whether it's east or the west, it doesn't make any difference. If you go to Orfa or you go to the, the eastern side of Turkey, it's exactly the same. But there in Istanbul, all of a sudden people have the old traditional Turkish clothing, the baggy trousers, and mm-hmm. and it's, it's almost to make the complete change. Mm. And the thing is, there's nothing wrong with that. The point I'm trying to make here is that's a natural progression of a lot of people that they have to make to to rubber stamp the fact they've changed, they've changed, and they're turned a page. It's a reminder to themselves and the people around them. Yeah, so it's actually a very important uh, psychological move for them because it's remind they're reminding themselves that they've changed. Yeah. Whereas if you just wear the same clothes and and, and outwardly exactly the same, it's easier to fall back into your old ways. To, to me, here that's a dilemma. To be honest, I mean, such a stark segregation. Now you're religious, and now you're not. Mm-hmm. If you wear this, you become religious, and if you don't, you're not religious. Mm. That in itself, that dichotomy is—is is it not segregating? Is it not damaging the the way humans live? Becomes quite. No, um, I, I think you need, to, you need to take a step back and and, and recognize the fact that issues of modesty and clothing have to be normal that's part of muslim mm. values okay so the fact of, of modesty in clothing and in demeanor and speaking those are given so no values whether turkish values british values french values or indonesian values will override the fact that we have certain human is muslim values which is about modesty which is basically human values about general modesty and decorum those things have to remain and then once you've once you've got those as a person then anything over and above that of a specific type of clothing mm-hmm. um, which marks you out from other people I, I personally do think that that is it is a barrier to naturalizing our our, our presence in mm-hmm. a place like um, Scotland or Britain I think it becomes a barrier just a, a, a very visible barrier mm. um, which you know we have to think about whether it is it is um, it is wise for for, for, our, for as an expression of our faith whether it's wise in terms of uh, and the reason I'm saying that wise is because naturally in any country the Muslims came to they went through what we went through and they, they changed the way they, clo- they closed yeah. themselves and that's yeah. like a that is the most that thing I've just said is actually the most non-controversial and obvious thing because every Muslim country has its own clothing. Absolutely. Do you understand? And how did that happen? The Arabs when they came or whoever came they had different clothing. They didn't come in the clothing of the people there. When they arrived they changed and they realised look we want to show these people that you know Islam brings something and there's actually a very interesting metaphor. Uh, One of the scholars in in Africa he said that um, Islam is, is not is like a pure stream hmm. imagine a pure close your eyes and you think of a, a pure water stream running down a mountainside what colour is it it's totally clear yeah. but imagine the bedrock the, the stone underneath it mm-hmm. you might have grey um, slate and you ha- might have some kind of sedentary water later on and red silt 
the the color you see is dependent upon the, what's underneath it. Yeah. But the but the stream is pure. The water is pure. Absolutely. And Islam is that pure purity of value, and but it takes on the color of the culture and the country it, it comes in. So we have Bosnian. You have a Bosnian Islam. It's not saying the government. You know, in 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 the seventeenth century, imposed something upon the Bosnian people and said, "Look, we want Bosnian Bosnian Islam." And the way that people say British British Islam is like an imposition, of, and it's some to some degree is true. It's almost this idea of pushing Muslims to say, "Look, you need to have British Islam." So obviously, that's kind of the government kind of agency sometimes pushing us. But if you go to Sindh, if you go to Balochistan, if you go to you know Egypt or Algeria. They naturally evolved their yeah, own understanding yeah. of what Algerian Islam is based upon. It's a very visi- visibly different expression as well. Um, in terms visibly of different, but n- I mean I've, re- I've experienced this so many times. But when you close your eyes to the clothing and the, all that, there's no difference in yeah. values. Mm. I, mean, I remember when I was in in Ta'is, northern Yemen, I was passing through. Actually, I was I was hitchhiking from Aden to to Sana'a. And I stopped in in, in um, what was the place? Um, it slipped my mind. Um, it's a place where there was a famous um, queen, uh, one of the first, actually, most famous um, queens of of Yemen. Um, it'll come to me. I didn't have anywhere to stay, but I stayed. I just knocked at somebody's door, mm. and I, I said, "Look, I need somewhere to stay." And it was a mother of the mosque. It happened to be the mother of the mosque, so he he put me into t- the house. But his clothing was. Old traditional, like this is somewhere where mm. nobody's, you know, hasn't changed probably for, for a thousand years. The clothing, and the toilets as well. Mm. <laughs> the toilets as a whole, and on the sixth floor of a, of a mud built, an amazing place. I mean, mud built, mud and stone, and everything was untouched. And the clothing was looked so archaic. It wasn't like from China. Mm-hmm. Like, well, it didn't have a sign. I can guarantee that it was made very close to where he was. But once we sat down and we we talked and the way we prayed, it was all. Exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Like the way your finger moves in prayer. That's such an amazing thing to experience Absolutely. that. He hasn't watched TV, he didn't have a TV. Yeah. He barely had a radio. And, but the fact is that, you know, standing in prayer, the way he prayed, and the, that everything is the same, but the clothing was strikingly different. Yeah, yeah. And so the, that clothing which he has, in fact, a lot of scholars say that is the closest clothing to the, the clothing the Prophet said in northern Yemen. Yemeni's clothing is actually. The closest to the, the closing of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, in terms of the way it is and 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 its and its kind of um, you know changeability to different situations. So the thing is that in in this country, for example, we have to not have it imposed, but have to naturally think that there is such a thing as a Scottish um, Islamic clothing, which mm. will naturally happen. I think what we're doing nowadays, like me and you, yeah, are yeah, yeah. intellectualizing it too much. And thinking about it too much. Naturally, this used to happen over a couple of decades, generations, and before you knew it, it changed to this natural Muslims in a country where, where they breathe and they feel part of the culture. But and it, what it, we're doing now is, is saying, well, what's the rules? What's the conditions? What's yeah. that never happened in the past? What scholars did, what they did do, is if it went AWOL and it went somewhere beyond what it should, yes. they would say, look, this is not permitted. Yes, yes, yes. So if your 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 so, so Ahmed is if the, if the faith values are infused in in, in people, mm. then naturally <coughs> they will come to the conclusions that all our generations came to that the local customs that you adhere to, uh, which do not go against 
basic Muslim values. I mean, especially in Scotland, if you look at the kilt and the old classical kilt that they wear, it's just like the ihram, but in checkered, mm. you know, multicoloured... Um, With lovely tartans. Lovely tartans, but the what, the clothing is ex- almost exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. You, you know it, I mean, the ihram yeah. and uh, the, the traditional Scottish Highland clothing is almost the same. Which we are inshallah going to learn today is taken from Surah Al Mu'minun, Surah number 23, verse number 159, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches His companions to say, Rabbana amanna faghfir lana warhamna wa anta khairul rahimeen. Rabbana, O our Lord, amanna, we have believed. Faghfir lana, so forgive us. Warhamna and have mercy upon us. Wa anta khairul rahimeen. And surely you are the best of the merciful. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So this uh, this du'a that you've chosen is um, from uh, one of the Mac- uh, Medinan surahs, um, Surah Al-Mu'minun. And um, it, it's an interesting um, chapter of the Qur'an because it, it provides, it starts with a very interesting description, Al-Mu'minun. It describes, and it starts, and the name is, is actually derived from the first um, word, first verse, which is about the believers. Even though, imagine every chapter of the Qur'an is a chapter for the believers or benefit to the believers um, of use to the believers but this specific one has a description of um, the acts that the believers do in, in terms of praying and giving zakat and also in terms of pre- preserving their chastity and and it has within it towards the end of it a, a specific dua which is actually very simple it's a very simple dua but it, what for me is interesting um, is the way it's constructed and, and this is why, you know, just as a side point, you know, du'as, we can make them in our own languages. Remember, du'a um, is nothing more and means nothing more than to indicate your need in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's basically a plea. It's an indication of a plea from yourself to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And all it is, is you're asking for something specific. You're asking for Allah to give you something, which in Arabic is usually some kind of um, inaya. Inaya is some kind of um, help or attention. So you're calling upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for some, some kind of attention or some kind of um, providence, which you don't have and you can't possibly get. So think of all the things you ask dua for. Mm. These are things outside your normal capacity. Mm-hmm. You're asking Allah to specifically aid you in something or provide you with something or to solve something or resolve something and you know that move and which is mentioned here in Surah Al-Mu'minun that move to ask Allah to grant you something um, can either be an individual person doing it you can just say it for yourself mm-hmm. or you can do it as a collective body and, and this specific dua when we come to it is actually a collective dua but this idea of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you know, providing for you and you know, the Quran says um, beseech me and supplicate me I will respond to you mm-hmm. that is to you specifically as an individual so Allah um, help me in this in this um, you know, the profession that I have is becoming difficult or the, or the or the income is becoming difficult for us or, or, we, or we, require, we require a child or a bless us with a child these are individual concerns that we have mm-hmm. and for a lot of people, they come to terms with the lack of those things and they come to have patience in it. So a person who's in dire poverty, and they've been in dire poverty generation after generation, their father or their parents have been in dire poverty, they're just brought up in dire poverty, they ask Allah to relieve it, but they have some sort of, um, they have kind of resolved themselves to the fact that they're in poverty. Mm. 
that's an individual but the collective understanding of dua is always based upon guidance not upon things Mm. So when you ask for dua you'll say my business or you know my relationship with my husband or my wife or my mother or you know something that you or only you probably know about and you want it to be fixed and you're asking God directly for that that's a very that's a very specific type of dua which which actually relates specifically to immense servitude, servitude to God and you beseech Allah in the most pure way mm. because it's a real thing for you Mm-hmm. Like imagine somebody in in your family, may Allah protect us, is, is afflicted by you know cancer or some kind of mm-hmm. terminal illness. The du'a that comes out of that person's heart and the person's tongue is heartfelt and is specific and immediate. Mm-hmm. And they're not just messing about in that kind of situation. Mm-hmm. That's when you know even people that don't believe in God believe in God. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when everything turns upside down. Mm-hmm. You know if somebody is in terminal illness. Everything that you accepted to be the the case in terms of your belief in God or your relationship with God, all of a sudden you see people just completely change because that type of inayah and beseeching of help cannot cannot come from anywhere except God. Mm. You can't turn anywhere else for that kind of help. So that is one type, but this this type is is different because it starts with Rabbana, Amanna, O Allah, O our Lord, our Lord, not my Lord. Mm. Um, our collective Lord. In other words, this is you know this this chapter is one where the collective community is is praying. The collective community is coming together with what they want, and what they want is not going to be the same thing as Allah. You know, help us in our in our in our professions, in our income, in our the illnesses that we have. It's going to be something that is just about the hereafter, salvation. Rabbana mm. Amanna. It's almost as if this dua starts when we think about it it starts almost with something called istighatha which is you're you're trying to almost like barter or trade or to purchase something mm-hmm. as if you picked up on this you, you give something in, to, in order to get something so what's been given y- y- have you picked this up in the dua or not no you haven't so yes what I'm saying is I'm picking up from this dua that this kind of you, the, the collective community are giving something because they want something. Okay. It's almost as if you're, you're having a trade. It's an, oh, almost like a trade re, a trade agreement. Rabbana amanna. Oh, oh our Lord, we have believed. Hmm. Hmm. In other words, we have... Submission. This is what we... Amanna, which means we've, we've accepted, we've believed, we have submitted. This is our part of the deal. In other words, we want to buy something from you, purchase something. And this is what we want. We're going to give you... What is the means by which and it's called istighatha, which basically means you, you beseech something through something or um, a wasila. You're using your faith, and it's the same way that you know the people. This famous story of, of the three people that were that were behind a, 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 or in a cave, and a boulder moved in front of them. And remember what they did to they could not push the boulder away, mm. and so each of them beseeched Allah through an action that they'd done. Mm. Pious action. They said, oh "Allah, if I was, if I was um, sincere in this action, and only you know that I was sincere, move the, the stone a little, and the boulder started to move, and they they escaped." It's similar here, Rabbana Amanna. That idea that, "Oh Allah, we're going to give you something," and the thing that we're giving is the thing that God asked for, which is to believe in Him. Mm-hmm. And belief here means actually 
to everything that comes with it. If you believe in God, you're going to adore God, you're going to worship God, you're going to rely on God. And it was, it's, in Arabic they say, الْإِسْمِ لَا أُطْلِقَ الْكَرِمَ إِذَا أُطْلِقَ فَالْمُرَادْ بِهِ الْفَرْضِ الْكَامِلِ If you use a word, what you intend by it is the most perfect manifestation of that word. So Iman here does not just mean um, we believe in it, we believe and we practice and we are convinced. And if that's the case, it's almost as if we're asking Allah for, uh, from you for something فَغْفِرْ لَنَا And therefore, if we've done this, there's also something that we want to ask you, which is that we are human beings and we are prone to mistakes and, and sin and wrong actions. So our part of the bargain has been done. We require something from you, which is فَغْفِرْ لَنَا Which is actually to give us something called غُفَر Which is to forgive or ghufran, which actually in Arabic, the old classical pre-Islamic dictionaries talk about ghufran as being a type of um, foliage or plant which you put on um, uh, a cut or something that's infected. And what happens is it actually, um, it um, it cures it. You know, like you have like an ointment which mm-hmm. you have a cut and it's, if you don't put an ointment on it, it's going to get worse and over a couple of days it might get infected. This was something that the pre-Islamic Arabs used to use to um, kind of cover over a, a something called, in fact, in Arabic, fujur. It, just think of it, actually, fujur and you know, fajr is mm-hmm. the, the 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 breaking of dawn. Fujur is actually a, a, a surface um, cut or or um, opening which is which is actually infected. And so, fujur is actually used for sin as well. Okay. Because it's, it's a wound. It's a wound, isn't it? And so th- your fujur, which is your in, your your inequity against God and your sinning against God and wrong actions in front of Allah, can only be cured if you look the, look at the kind of medical or the physical metaphor by something placing something on it, and that is ghufran. Mm. And the interesting here is you 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 can't. It's God that does that. Mm-hmm. You ask for it. It's almost like going to the chemist and saying, "Can I can I get paracetamol?" Or you can actually pick it up from this, the the counter. But imagine something behind the counter. Mm-hmm. So penicillin, for example, you say to the pharmacist, or you got the you got the you know what's, what's it called prescription for penicillin. Just by asking, it's not going to happen. The pharmacist has to Beseech. give it, decide. Okay. Okay, I'm going to give you, or they can say, Look, "You're a drug addict, get out." Or I don't like you, get out, or you're barred from the shop. Mm. And it's almost like we go to Allah and we say, look, we've we've got this thing we need, and here's a request, can you give it to us? And it's Allah that forgives. Like, we don't do anything in that. All we do is we ask, and it's up to Allah whether he forgives or not. So this kind of this kind of interesting bartering going on, which is, Rabbana amanna faghfil lana. And this idea of forgiving us, again, not just me, all of us, because in that collectiveness is also this idea that maybe there's a thousand of us and out of the thousand of us there's only one worthy of actually being forgiven you know there's there's one person who is spent their life and their hearts pure more than anybody else's and you're hoping that person by kind of tagging on to that person you know hiding behind the person's you know demeanor and their presence in front of Allah that you will also be allowed in. It's almost like trying to get through a queue and just, you know, like in Arab countries, safarish you have in, in Pakistan, kind of a, a backhander or rishwa. 
It's almost as if you're using that person to get to where you want to get. So this collective idea is very important in Ramadan because one of the reasons why you should engage in collective du'a in Ramadan uh, and which and reason why it's not an innovation bid'ah is that by having a collective du'a you may be forgiven because somebody else in the congregation has been forgiven and they've said Rabbana amanna faqfil lana Sheikh, that du'a is Rabbana um, Rabbana amanna faqfil lana Yeah, so Oh Allah, we have believed in you mm-hmm. so please forgive us Warhamna Warhamna come to and have mercy But this idea of faqfil is actually uh, I'm a minute, kind of fixated a on it. A minute to iftar. So we'll just finish the dua then. Warhamna, uh, and therefore also convey upon us uh, mercy, um, because it's almost as if once the the maghfira has been given, which is a difficult thing, the rahma is understood. The, the rahma is Allah has has put it in front of every single chapter except for one. So we're, we're not going to need that as much. We're going to need afu. Ghufran, but not the Rahma. Anta khayru rahimin, and you are the one that is most perfect in giving a Rahma, because everybody else does—mothers, parents, children, family members. But anta khayru rahimin. So this du'a it seems such a simple. I was thinking, I just looked at it when you when you played it. It looks like such a simple thing, and but actually thinking about it, it's actually a very deep, deep du'a. And that's the nature of Quran du'as are extremely deep, even the ones that look superficial. Time for Maghrib, inshallah. Please pray for yourselves and us. Jazakallah khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. For more information and to listen to more podcasts, visit us at arc.score or check out the Arc Media app.